Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In her book, Gulp, Adventures on the Alimentary Canal, out now in paperback, Mary Roach explores the much maligned but vital tube from mouth to rear that turns food into the nutrients that keep us alive. She introduces us to scientists who tackle questions no one else thinks to ask. Why doesn't the stomach digest itself? Can wine tasters really tell a $10 bottle from a $100 bottle? Why do Americans eat, on average, no more than 30 different foods on a regular basis? Gulp is as much about human beings as it is about human bodies, and we meet a disgust researcher, a saliva expert, and one of medicine's oddest couples, Alexis St. Martin, a French-Canadian trapper with a whole gut shot in his stomach, and William Beaumont, the Army surgeon who achieved fame by placing food inside St. Martin to see what happened. Mary Roach is coming to Utah next week. She'll be appearing in Salt Lake City for Weller Bookworks at the Salt Lake City Public Library. That appearance is Monday, April 21st at 7 p.m. that evening. And for this Access Utah conversation, I reached Mary Roach in California on Wednesday. And you got into this, I guess you call it a, a niche. One uh, reviewer uh, called it um, Science of the Taboo, the Macabre, the Icky, the Just Plain Weird. That sounds about right. Do you, do you own that? Do you, do you agree with that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've, I've, uh, I've copyrighted that. It's protected. <laughs> no one else can go near it. So, uh, yeah, along with the word curious, which uh, seems to be in, I think, three of my subtitles. I didn't do that intentionally, but it seems to have become it's my word now. Yeah. Uh, so uh, cadavers, uh, weightlessness, um, sex, and and in, in this book, which, by the way, is out in paperback, Gulp, Adventures on the Alimentary Canal. What's the Alimentary Canal? The Alimentary Canal is the whole food chute from nose to tail, basically. That strange, squishy tube that runs all the way through us, kind of like a donut hole. That's the Alimentary Canal. Aliment being what Spanish for food. Hmm. Aliment, food. So it's the, it's the food chute. Yeah. So uh, how do you pick your topics? What uh, what made you want to write about the Alimentary Canal? I pick my topics in a, uh, well, my my books, they tend to happen when I have a couple nuggets of, of material that I, I wasn't able to use or really do justice to. And sometimes I think, well, what, what could I build around this? And I had, when I wrote Packing for Mars, I had come across a study a project at UC Berkeley in the nutrition department, uh, wherein, this was in the 60s, uh, they, uh, they were trying to see what would be a good, a simple thing to grow on a Mars mission. This was all quite speculative. What would be a simple thing to feed the astronauts that we could grow on a spaceship wouldn't take up a lot of space? Well, what about bacteria? They actually tested, uh, they served up on a plate this slurry of bacteria <laughs> to these uh, poor I'm guessing, undergraduate students. And that got me thinking about the science of eating and food and how uh, there's a lot of books written on food and the joys of eating and cooking and cuisine. But once we start chewing it, we don't think about it. We don't want to think about it. And uh, there are actually a lot of of interesting things happen uh, from the the mouth onward, and I thought it would be fun to, you know, follow along with that food a little ways and and, um, write about... Am I right about that, basically? This ends up being uh, very interesting human stories. Uh, a lot of scientists, of course, that's who you would deal with, but uh, just some fascinating people. You couldn't make up these stories. 
No, they're, that, that, that's right. Some of them, the the the, uh, the beautiful Italian saliva researcher. I, that that was. Uh, I don't know what I expected from a saliva researcher, but I certainly didn't expect this well dressed, well coiffed, beautiful Italian woman <laughs> in in boots that I really wanted. Uh, that she she and she had this passion for you know, spit. Basically, she she was. Uh, um, a delight, you know. She'd get very animated when she spoke about the miraculous antimicrobial properties of saliva and the, and the way the you know these long chains form, and that's just why it's sort of mucoid. But here's what it does: it kind of traps bacteria, it prevents it from clumping. And she, at one point, she slams her fist on the table. It's amazing, and she's talking about saliva. Uh, so that kind of person, I, I I love spending time with that sort of person in their world, in the lab. Uh, so there's a lot of that in this book. Hmm. And there, not, there's not just saliva. There's a fair amount of I don't know obsession, doggedness would be a mm-hmm. maybe a kinder term, which I guess makes some of these scientists successful. I think there there is typically a lot a, a, a certain degree of obsession with 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 science and with a scientist. I think that's that's what where the joy comes from in science. It just discovery and digging deeper and discovering more, realizing there's, it's more complicated than you realized, but also more interesting, and, and it all it keeps bringing you further along. I think that that's, you know, and I, I go through a similar process with my books, but on a much broader scale. I'm kind of hopscotching all over, whereas scientists are digging deeper and deeper. Uh, but but I, I, I enjoy spending, yeah, I enjoy spending time in that world, the world of the laboratory, and it's a, you know, laboratories are, a, you know, they're often sort of isolated, they're often, you know, some of them are in the basement, some of them are up on the top floor, they're, and they have this, they all have their own strange pieces of equipment, and people tend to be there at funny hours, and it's a, it's a world I love to step into mm. over and over, and uh, um, I, don't, I myself, I don't think have the focus to be a scientist, but it, this way I, I get to hang around with them. Yeah, I guess you would have to have uh, focus. Uh, there's some there's some things which I guess you you just couldn't have imagined. Um, for example, um, President Garfield's doctor, whose first name was Doctor. <laughs> doctor Doctor Willard Bliss. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That someone wrote me a note that and said that that is to to, to name uh, a child Doctor is a, a an old Mormon tradition for a certain. Uh, the third-born male or something. There, there was something about, there was a bit of an explanation that somebody passed along. I heard it, and I just thought, well, here's a guy, you know, his parents wanted him to become a doctor. Uh, that's going to maybe steer him in that direction. And also, you know, he, uh, uh, Dr. Bliss uh, was uh, not, a, not a particularly great doctor. He, he, was, uh, he made some blunders. And if your name's doctor, they can strip you of your license, and you will still always be Dr. Bliss. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I don't know if that that was part of the decision, but anyway, <laughs> Doctor Doctor Willard Bliss, yeah. And and as you say, not a particularly good doctor, probably hastened the death of President Garfield after he was shot. Yes, there was an assassination attempt, uh, and Garfield. Well, one of the things Doctor Bliss became fascinated by, and this is this is not one of the blunders, but he um, he began feeding uh, President Garfield. Uh, from the other end, 
because Garfield wasn't able to keep things down. He was, uh, I think that that was the case. It wasn't like it was a stricture, but anyway, he wasn't able to take food in, in the normal direction, so he began feeding him in reverse, and he wrote, Garfield wrote an entire book called Rectal Feeding, including some recipes which we don't need to get into, but um, but it is possible to. So I mean, and I I found this fascinating that you you can absorb some um, nutrients this way. It's not uh, it's not ideal. Like eighty or more percent of your absorption of nutrients happens in the small intestine, not way down at the end. Uh, but there are some um, some nutrients and some you, know, you can keep hydrated. And uh, certain drugs are administered uh, that way, that, and they take act action more quickly because you're bypassing the, the stomach and other organs and just going, goes directly into the bloodstream. So there are some, some advantages to it, but, uh, but I, you know, he, he, I, he got very excited about it and you know, published a book. And, hmm. Interesting. So it is possible to take some nutrient that, that way. Yeah, yes, yeah. That's, yeah, that's right. It is, you know, salts and sugars and some fatty acids and Hydration, yeah, there are, uh, there, there definitely are. Some things are getting through that way. It's just, it's not ideal. I, I think you know, you could postpone someone's death, but you probably wouldn't keep them alive long term feeding them that way. And mm. uh, there were other, as you can imagine, other disadvantages to eating mm. backwards. I don't want to spend the entire hour talking about Doctor Bliss, <laughs> but it's just uh, <laughs> this is a parenthetical. Apparently, he. Uh, he charged the government the equivalent in today's dollars of a quarter of a million dollars for his services at mm-hmm. uh, you know at, at the assassination of Dr. Or of President Garfield. Um, yes, so, and he was also known for uh, hiring uh, uh, secretaries to come in and be nurses and, and you know not washing his hands. And there were a number of things that that he was doing that were not uh, not something you would expect of a presidential doctor. Mm-hmm. We're talking uh, with uh, Mary Roach, who's. Uh, book gulp adventures on the alimentary canal is out in paperback and uh, she is coming to salt lake city uh, you have a chance to to go and uh, interact with mary roach that's uh, sponsored by weller bookworks and it's happening at the salt lake city public library the testament auditorium 7 p.m on monday april 21st mary roach uh, as i mentioned some some just some interesting characters uh, along with the interesting science what if you tell us about you have a, a chapter here about william beaumont and alexis st martin yes william beaumont is uh, was a um, an army physician who Stumbled upon, uh, the, he was a, he was a physician out in the Michigan territories. There was nearby the Army garrison. There was a uh, fur trappers general store. The American Fur Company had kind of a trading post. There was an accident. One of the fur uh, couriers came in and, and to the store. Uh, the gun discharged accidentally. I'm not sure who fired it, but anyway, opened up a hole in St. Martin's side. It didn't, including the stomach. The hole didn't heal. Uh, his doctor, Dr. Beaumont, realized he could peer inside the human stomach, see these things, juices being, juices being secreted. He could see um, contractions going on. He decided to do a formal study, and he did this by, because at the time, the, the process of human digestion wasn't very well understood. Uh, there was some, some people said it's mechanical, the stomach grinds and squishes and contracts, and, and that's how food is break, broken down. Other people said, no, no, it's a chemical process. So he, cleverly enough, took this um, 
a mesh bag, a silk bag, with different types of food, some raw, some cooked, a whole chunk of beef, a piece of bread, some cabbage that's cut up but not thinly sliced, put it in the bag, would put it in the stomach, and he had sort of hired uh, St. Martin to be a chore boy, a house boy, and so St. Martin would go around the house doing his duties with a bag of stuff in his stomach and a string hanging out so that the bag could be extracted at intervals to see what was left, and the curious thing about them, about this pair, this went on for some 30 years on and off. Um, the kind of, there's a kind of a mutual dependency. St. Martin knew there weren't very many stomachs like his that afforded this opportunity. Beaumont was able to make his name as a pioneering physician, making discoveries, publishing things. Uh, and so St. Martin would every now and then take off uh, and disappear and leave, leave Beaumont uh, without a, without a subject, Beaumont would send out uh, messages. Uh, this was, of course, before email, and so sending out messages. Has anybody seen Saint Martin? Offer him this much money. Tell him all he can bring his family, and and Saint Martin would hold out for more money. And this went on and on you know, over over the course of their lifetimes. They were bound by this strange stomach that uh, the two of them kind of shared. Yeah, it was kind of uh, reading that. It was kind of hard to to know. Who's using who, and uh, yeah. you know, and, and to what extent? But I guess it did have benefits for both men. Uh, the doctor I, went on to some renown, didn't he? he became known as the yes. father yeah, of physiology. William, mm-hmm. William Beaumont is known as yeah, the, the father of physiology. He's uh, yes, he's someone. If, if you when you go to medical school, you you hear that name. You know, when you, you read the chapter on physiology, there's often a mention of William Beaumont. Uh, you know, Beaumont. The discoveries that he made, though, were things that if you look back uh, um, 100 years earlier, uh, some of the Italian anatomists and scientists had, had, had done work with animals in a similar way, and also with themselves, eating something and then making themselves regurgitate. I mean, it was, it was a way to sort of do what Beaumont was doing. Uh, and then also had done some work with animals where they put a piece of food in a capsule, like a metal capsule, so that they could see with, with, with open-ended um, mesh, so that the, if there were juices, those juices could get in. Um, the capsule would prevent the food from being crushed, and that way they proved, yes, in fact, this is a chemical method. So, so that big discovery Beaumont made had, in fact, been made to some extent by some earlier physiologists and experimenters, but nonetheless, it was, you know, a lot of people, I guess, weren't familiar with the, the Italian's work, and so Beaumont uh, had, it really came to renown, some renown as a, as a physiologist and an, an experimenter. Because it, it underlines, for me at least, is sometimes it's, it's luck, it's happenstance. These two men yes. happened to be together, and then this, yes. uh, unfortunately, the one man there's, got shot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's, there's a little bit of uh, a question mark in some people's minds as to how vigorously Dr. Beaumont tried to heal that hole and at what point it occurred to him that this could be his path to uh, experimental medical <laughs> renown. So it's, it's, it's unclear. From his own diaries, he says, I did everything I could to close that hole. And stomach uh, wounds can be problematic, getting them to heal. But there, but there has been a little speculation that he might have, he might have hatched this plan a little sooner uh, then he made out. Hmm. We're talking with Mary Roach, author of several books, and uh, her book, Gulp, Adventures on the Alimentary Canal, 
is out in paperback. Uh, she'll be coming to Utah on Monday, April 21st, an event for Weller Bookworks. That's at the Salt Lake City Public Library in the Tessman Auditorium, 7 p.m. on that evening. More following a brief break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the USU Extension 4-H and Youth Programs dedicated to ATV safety through promoting safe riding practices and environmental awareness. Information at utah4h.org. We're back with Mary Roach, author of uh, several books, including Gulp, Adventures on the Alimentary Canal, out in paperback. She's uh, coming to Salt Lake City Monday, April 21st, for Weller Bookworks. That's at the Salt Lake City Public Library, and at 7 p.m. on on that Monday, April uh, 21st. Um, I want to get into uh, talking about... Um, the connection between uh, smell and taste. Of course, we know there there is one. Uh, I learned a few things from from reading reading the book, including that how how important uh, smell is. In fact, people who lose the ability to smell uh, sometimes, you know, you can't get them to eat. Yes, that's that's true. I I, I before I began the book, I wasn't aware of the extent to which the experience of food is. Is olfactory. It's when you know when you say flavor. Flavor is a combination of taste, which is happening on the tongue. That's the basic sweet, sour, salty, bitter, and that other one that's kind of brothy. Uh, but th- those are the th- that's that's really the extent of what the tongue is uh, processing for you, you in terms of how you're experiencing what you eat. And all the rest of it, some eighty percent of it, is olfactory. It's these. Uh, when you hold food in your mouth and you chew it up and you hold it and warm it in your mouth, these gases are released and they waft up into the nose and that's our experience of you know everything from you know, lemon and chocolate and I mean obviously there's some bitter and some sweet involved in chocolate but but a, but a lot of the subtleties and nuance uh, you know citrus and black cherry and all those things that you read on the wine labels that's happening in the nose, uh, and it's combining with what's going on in the tongue to create this overall sensation of flavor. But uh, it, it is, a, it is um, yeah, without your, without your nose, the experience of eating is, is uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite diminished. Um, for, um, yeah. Uh, and, and so you say, you know, for, for people who, for whom everything tastes like cardboard, uh, some don't even want to eat. Yes, that's right. If you if you have um, if, if you have difficult well, and, and and the tongue part, you know, as well. I mean, somebody there are there are people who've lost um, the ability to you know some of, there's some damage to the tongue. But yeah, without the nose, I have a friend who has uh, almost no sense of smell, and she tends to just order the same food, and she'll she'll go, yeah, I, you pick the wine. To me, it all tastes the same. I can't really. It's just sweet. Hmm. She she doesn't. Um, she tends to not get excited about food it's, it's sort of something she has to do to keep going it's not uh, it's not a joy in the way that it is for you and i you uh you encounter something in the book uh, in your research called blast olfactometry yes that's a blast olfactometry that's a, a the way that um when you want to study the sense of smell you want to uh, have a controlled delivery of whatever it is the person is smelling, and so they, you would you put a little uh, tube up to the nose and you 
blast in. Blast sounds a little overly vigorous. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> it's not dangerous, uh, but it but it it delivers a controlled amount of the the gas that the, the the odorant as they call it. Some people, I guess, have a very heightened sense of smell and taste. Uh, you, I understand, uh, did a I guess an experiment where involved in uh, tasting olive oils? Oh, I tried out for an olive oil flavor panel. There are professional flavor panels for everything from mutton to chicken McNuggets to wines and all. all the wine and olive oil are, are, the, are the sort of the more common ones that you, you hear about people being a professional taster. Um, and I stumbled onto a... Uh, uh, a tryout, a call for <laughs> a call for tryouts for an olive oil flavor panel, and um, most of the people there, unlike me, were uh, professionals in the olive oil industry, and it was amazing to me what they were able to do with their mouths and noses, mostly noses. Um, they were able to rank. A, <laughs> they were given a series of olive oils and able to rank them by bitterness when I couldn't really, I wouldn't have described any of them as bitter. Um, I was given an olive oil uh, sample that I, I was perfectly fine. I was like, you know, give me a piece of bread. This is delicious. This was, this was in fact a rancid sample. I had no idea. Hmm. Um, but it, it isn't that they're uh, gifted you know, genetically with superior sense of smell or taste. It is that they have educated their palate. And this is true also for for wine in the wine industry. You know, you kind of think, oh, come on, there's no way you can be tasting, you know, black cherry licorice, cigar smoke, whatever, whatever you know, wood overtones. How could that possibly be? But the way that that way that you um, the way that you do that, you that you can actually buy this kit with all the chemical constituents that create these individual aroma notes and you can learn those one by one it's like learning a vocabulary and then when you taste when you put a wine into your mouth and you hold it in your mouth and the aromas go up into the nose you're able to identify those whereas someone like myself just goes mm, yeah that's nice i can't it's kind of like listening to a symphony um if you're a musician or an educated listener you can pick out you know, the oboe and the piccolo and the, all, all of the different instruments whereas someone else just responds to the overall sound of the music. Uh, that's reassuring in a way, isn't it? You can, you can learn this. You can learn this, yes. You can absolutely learn it. It's not a closed club. Hmm. Tell me about uh, Paul Wagner, wine judge. He, he plays a game with his wine marketing students. He does. He's done this for some 16 years, and he's taken a bunch of wines, and he's hidden the label by putting them in a brown paper bag, which I think is a lovely touch. <laughs> so he's in the yes. label. He's got a bunch of bottles of wine, and some of them are under $10, and some are over 50 And every year, the highest average rating goes to one of the under $10 wines. And, and that's to say, it's, some of the, the um, it does, not to say that these are better, but that when you get to the very high-end wines, they're going to appeal to some people, but they're going to seem unusual and strange to other people. Whereas uh, a less expensive wine that is geared to a wide audience, you know, there are certain things that most people like. There's a certain kind of jammy, a little bit, tiny bit sweet, not too tannic. You know, there's a kind of, and I don't know if that is the, the attributes of the more popular wine, but there's a, um, that's going to, on average, get a higher, end up with a higher average rating. 
so that and that was you know that's that's very, that's consistent they're definitely and these are students these are these are students who who you know who who know their wines they're not coming in off the street so it's, it was an interesting so but but their palates aren't educated to the extent that I, I don't know that connoisseurs would would hope well, or... that they're they're responding to you know they they they're they're rating it on in terms of how you know rating the rating is going to be on a certain to a certain extent subjective uh, they're going to, you know, they, it's it's separate from saying uh, these are the descriptors, these are the uh, flavors, that the, the, the aromas that I'm getting. It was just rate this wine, you know, and and, and so there was a, an element of subjectivity, and and uh, the, the, the the expensive ones weren't everybody's cup of tea, even amidst a, a group that had a, a quite educated palate. Hmm. Uh, so there there is an element of taste in in the other sense here. There's another study I like that was done in Bordeaux, um, wherein they gave people, and again, these were wine, these were wine people. They gave them a red wine, and they had them describe it using the usual wine descriptors that people use. And they wrote this list of wine descriptors, and it, and, and then they they gave them another red wine that was actually a white wine that had been dyed red, and they were c- careful to make sure that the dye didn't influence the taste flavor in any way and they had them okay describe this quote-unquote red wine and now they listed white wine descriptors and that doesn't mean that they're they're idiots or they're you know they're people that think that they can understand wine and they don't what that means that that demonstrates is that we are very visual creatures and the visual cues trump what's going on in the mouth Mary Roach is our guest in Access Utah today, if you're just joining us. Uh, she's author of uh, several uh, best-selling books. The latest, uh, just on paperback, is Gulp, Adventures on the Alimentary Canal, um, looking at the how we digest our food. So from the mouth to the other end. And the other end produces some very interesting science with a high ick factor. We'll get into that, including talking about fecal transplants, which I never knew happened or were possible before I read the book. So thank you very much, Mary Roach. Uh, but but very interesting here. And again, the, the, the scientists behind this are you know just very interesting as well. Uh, Mary Roach is uh, coming to Salt Lake City Monday, April 21st for Weller Bookworks. That will be happening at the Salt Lake City Public Library, the Testament Auditorium, 7 p.m. is the time for that appearance by uh, Mary Roach. Uh, this was very interesting to me, uh, Mary uh According to research for the Washington Center for Obesity uh, Research, Americans apparently aren't very adventurous. Uh, we eat, on average, no more than 30 different foods on a regular basis. I guess we just uh, choose the 30 foods we like best and rotate among those? That's, that's, that's what they found. And uh, I, initially I thought, well, how can that be? You know, how could that possibly But But then when I, 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 I think of myself as an adventurous Either I like to try new foods, but when I sat down and thought about what do I eat day to day, you know, I eat the same granola for breakfast with blueberries. I I go to three or four different places and pick up the same thing for lunch. You know, the, in terms of the, the recipes, you know, you go back to the same recipes that you know and you that don't take too long. So there really weren't that many, unless I was going out to eat somewhere new and exciting, which I don't do all that often. Um, it is, uh, yeah, we, we tend to, uh, we're a little bit, as they say, neophobic, uh, and that is, uh, that is the, that is the normal state for us. And that's something, um, even as, even as babies, and one of the, um, you know, ch- children tend to 
push away something new. They don't want to try something new. Uh, one of the ways I found this was fascinating that, that a new mother could combat this a bit was to introduce the food in the womb or while breastfeeding. Because in, in both cases, uh, if the woman, say, is eating garlic or uh, Brussels sprouts, something with a lot of uh, aromatic, uh, like either sulfur compounds, and things, things that, that are um, a strong flavor, a strong smell, uh, that, that those are detectable in the amniotic fluid and the breast milk. They actually had a, a flavor panel come and um, sniff breast milk, not taste it, but sniff the breast milk of women who had eaten garlic capsules, and they were able, you know, and then there were control samples, they were able to pick out, uh, the, you know, this smell the breast milk and say, oh yeah, this is the one with the garlic. So the child was uh, was taking in that flavor and getting used to it, and therefore when the uh, the child is exposed to it after birth, it's it's not going to be a new flavor. It's going to be a, a familiar item. So that that's a way maybe to combat this neophobia that we all uh, tend to have. Yeah, and I think we've all been around kids who you know don't want to try uh, something. On the other hand, you you talk about um, Paul Rosen, who's apparently a disgust researcher. What's that? Mm-hmm. Yes, well, he studies the psychology of disgust. It's a it's an emotion with it complete with its own involuntary facial reaction when you eat something or smell something disgusting. The nose r- kind of wrinkles up, the mouth opens to eject the offending food. So there is it's called the disgust face. Hmm. And that's something that uh, we all seem to display when we're disgusted. But he, yes, he he um, he talked about how children, um, the, the, the cultural likes and dislikes that we all are subject to, um, those don't those kick in at a certain point with children. And before that point, you can get little kids to little kids. Like I think it was up to I'm forgetting the span of months, but but really young kids would pick up and put in their mouth almost anything. And he tried this classic experiment where he presented uh, these little kids with a sterilized grasshopper, a piece of hair, I think also sterilized, um, ketchup on a cracker, fish eggs, dried fish, things that uh, are uh, you know challenging foods for anyone, and. The kids tended to, to, I think, like, oh, oh, there was one that was a, um, it was a ersatz dog do made from, um, I think it was, uh, it was scented with blue cheese, and it was some kind of a, I'm not sure what the substrate was, um, but I I, I think it was 55% of the kids would put that, and it it was presented as, here's, this is dog do, and the kids put it in their mouth. So, so up to a point, kids are very uh, accepting of strange foods, and, and then, and then that kind of fades away. Hmm. So what's going on here, do you think? We, we, we don't like to try new things. I guess we're, is that protecting us from potentially dangerous foods, or what, what's going on, do you think? Well, they're, 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 we, culture by culture, you know, we, we tend to, um, there's a wonderful line, I think it was one of the anthropologists who in World War II were trying to change America's eating habits to get them to embrace organ meats because that's what was left over. The troops wanted the good cuts, and, and they're trying to get Americans to eat organ meats. And so there was a bunch of studies done on American on, on eating habits and how do you change a culture's eating habits. And one of the one of the anthropologists said people don't eat what they like; they like what they eat. In other words, if you give it to somebody over and over. They're going to like it. They did a, there was a study where they gave uh, at a women's college. They evaporated milk. They 
ask these women, give them a survey, do you like, you know, rate these foods? 15% said they liked evaporated milk. They served it in the, in the cafeteria for a couple of weeks. They gave that survey of likes and dislikes. Again, now after they've been drinking the evaporated milk for a couple of weeks, now 51% said, yeah, I like evaporated milk. Mm. So if you could just get the old try it, you'll like it. Seems to be effective, um, but the most effective way to change a culture's eating is to have someone high status and in public view embrace something or eat it. Like with organ meats, what we've been seeing, you know, there's now restaurants, high high end restaurants, where they're serving bone marrow and sweetbreads, and that's become hip and trendy. And so now it's you know eating organ meats, which would originally in this country was viewed as what the lower classes ate because they couldn't afford the good cuts. Now that's a high status item. So that's really uh, the most effective way, it seems, to get a culture to change what uh, it, it feels is good to eat. And it apparently takes, uh, you, you're right, uh, five to ten years for new ethnic cuisine or foreign food to gain acceptance. I guess that, that has to do with what yes. we've been talking about. And there's a, there's a typical path, I guess, by which uh, ethnic food gains acceptance. Yeah, the... the um the person that I spoke to was saying that it, it, yeah, it typically starts out as an appetizer on menus in restaurants. So there's, it's not a big risk to order an appetizer of bone marrow. But you're not necessarily, well, you wouldn't, that might not be a main course anyway. But you know, organ meats, that's something that you, you, you want to tiptoe into. And so it starts as an appetizer, and then it might move to an entree in a restaurant. And then when it's deemed to be pretty low risk, as a marketing venture, then you would you would start to see companies uh, creating dishes that you could uh, you know prepare, whether it's frozen or something to, that you prepare at home. You would start to see that, but yeah, five five to ten years for that progression typically. So it's a it's a slow embracing of things that are new. I mean, I remember when I was a child uh, in New Hampshire, no ethnic cuisine whatsoever. Now you go back to my hometown. There's, uh, you can get pho, Vietnamese soup, you can, there's a couple of Mexican restaurants, there's Thai, there's really everything in this small town in New Hampshire. Uh, and uh, that's, you know, that's more than 10, I mean, I'm sad to say, more than 10 years back, but that is, you know, it, it, it has been this gradual evolution. We're talking with Mary Roach, author of Gulp, Adventures on the Alimentary Canal, out in paperback. Uh, she's coming to Salt Lake City. That's Monday, April 21st, for Weller Bookworks. The event is happening at Salt Lake City Public Library in the Testament Auditorium, 7 p.m. It's on Monday, April 21st. More following a brief break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3. Now offering a ham and cheese demi-baguette sandwich. Menu details at crumbbrothers.com. You're listening to Access Utah. Our guest is Mary Roach, author of several books, Gulp, Adventures on the Alimentary Canal is the one we're talking about now. It's out in paperback. Mary Roach is coming to Utah next week. She'll appear in Salt Lake City for Weller Bookworks. That's at the Salt Lake City Public Library, Testament Auditorium there. That's Monday, April 21st at 7 p.m. I want to check some of these uh, interesting facts. Uh, so we've heard, you know, we have a traditional uh, tradition or, or cultural thing, uh, kiss a boo-boo. Uh, dogs lick their wounds. Apparently, there's science behind that. Yes, the uh, saliva 
Saliva is is a fairly miraculous substance. It's got some antibacterial properties and also some nerve and skin growth elements, some things that stimulate healing. Uh, this has been demonstrated in, in rather uh, bizarre uh, ways. For example, there was a study where there, I, I believe it was rodents, and they disconnected the um, the salivary gland so that when the, the animal licked a wound, there wasn't any saliva being deposited. So they had, uh, and then they had a control where the animal was licking the wound as it does normally. So you have these uh, uh, two creatures, and the the ones without the saliva, the wound healed more slowly. Uh, when the when the salivary system was was disconnected, uh, so there was a pretty effective demonstration of the the healing properties of saliva, which is very it's counterintuitive because the mouth you know there are a lot of germs in the mouth and uh, um, the, 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 obviously the saliva has uh, has ways of uh, mitigating that and also antiviral elements saliva the other thing saliva does is uh, it uh, dilutes acid in food if you're drinking wine or or citrus juice, things that are on the acid range of the pH scale, that will dissolve your tooth enamel quite effectively. So saliva, and you can demonstrate this by taking a sip of wine, and if you're paying attention, you will feel this gush of saliva, uh, stimulated saliva coming in to um, dilute that acid so and protect the teeth. So there's all kinds of things that uh, saliva is doing on our behalf, and yet we find it revolting. Yeah, and when the dog licks my face, I guess that's I should let him do it. I guess you should let him do it. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> okay. Particularly if you've got a if you've got a you know a shaving cut on your face. Yes, yes. If I, okay, I'll 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 try it. <laughs> I'm, I'm assuming there's some cross species possibilities there. That I I haven't tried it, but you know by all means, be the first. Yeah. <laughs> um, here's an interesting question. I hadn't even thought of this question, but once I read it, I wanted to know the answer. Why doesn't the stomach digest itself? The stomach has a number of uh, interesting protective mechanisms. Uh, there is something called the mucus layer, and that is, a, that is protecting us from protecting the stomach from its own juices. The stomach lining also regenerates. Uh, I think every uh, uh, what I heard was every three days you have uh, a new stomach lining. So there's a number of things going on. Uh, protective mechanisms. The stomach also is very good at protecting itself from rupture. It is very, very difficult to rupture the human stomach. Uh, you can overeat to a tremendous extent. Uh, there are stretch receptors that keep tabs on how big the stomach is getting and how close to the rupture point. And before it hits the rupture point, it will reflexively empty itself. You will regurgitate. And that's a, that's a safety mechanism hmm. that we all have, including competitive eaters who will, and this is gross, uh, swallow it, just swallow it back down. That's what they told me. Wow. Yeah, I, I, yeah, that's right. I'd forgotten about competitive eaters. Yeah. So you, that's, you know, I said, how do you get around this reflex, this, this uh, you know, the regurgitation reflex when the stomach is that full? And he said, oh, no, we don't. We just, the rules say that the food has, uh, the food can't come out, but it can come up. I'm like, okay, it's... Yeah. <laughs> All right, thank you. Yeah, I mean, you know, I I don't think I'd ever join that. Uh, you call it profession or avocation, but uh, there are people that do that. Um, space shoot, spacesuits. You did a whole other book on on you know space. Spacesuits yeah. have activated charcoal filters. Why? Because, well, various reasons. But if uh, if you were to, if you're wearing a pressure suit, that's a it's a like a a human body 
shaped room that you're in. And so it's uh, airtight. So this air in there is recirculating. And if you introduce intestinal gas, shall we say, into the mix, that will recirculate and go past your nose over and over again. So the charcoal, the activated charcoal, is absorbing those nasty, uh, organic, smelly components so that you don't have to keep re-experiencing your own flatus yeah. over and over and, and um, taking the fun out of your spacewalk. And their whole department, well, a whole department, I don't know, at, at NASA has to think about these sorts of things. Yes, it will, and the, the, not only the aroma of, of intestinal gas, but the, the, the flammability of it. Uh, I mean, hydrogen, which is the, the, a large component in human flatus, I enjoy saying that word, flatus. Uh, 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 hydrogen, you know, in concentrations, ten uh, percent or so, it's 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 uh, combustible. So you have these astronauts in in this sealed capsule, on this not so much the suit, but the sealed capsule. And, and uh, if they were producing enough gas, there was a concern that um, it might reach concentrations where there'd be a danger of an explosion. So there was NASA did for a while keep on contract Michael Levitt, who was a an expert in gastrointestinal, well, in inflatus, the particular expertise was in intestinal gas. So, uh, By the <laughs> way, he assured them that, that they'd be safe, that it wasn't yeah. going to be of a dangerous concentration. By the way, I learned that term from your book. That's it. It, it makes it sound a little more elegant, flatus. Flatus, um, yes. And uh, one of the experts you talk to, and there are experts that study this. Um, you, you know, there, there have been people who have, who have tried to make flatus not smell as bad. This particular yeah. expert said, uh, just get a dog. <laughs> That's right. Get a dog to blame it on. I know. Yeah. Yeah, there are strategies. There is something. There's an internal deodorant. It's a substance that, uh, that absorbs the odor, and you could take these pills, there are pads to put in underwear, there are things you can do, but I do like, uh, I do like that advice, to get yeah. a dog. Yeah. As we reach the end of the program, we're reaching the end of the elementary canal. Um, I was grossed out, but also fascinated by this, this idea of fecal transplant. Why, why would you do that? A fecal transplant is a very effective cure for a chronic and dangerous uh, infection in the large intestine called C. difficile is the bacteria, and uh, it's very difficult to get rid of this bacteria with, can be difficult with it, with antibiotics, and uh, what, so what you're doing basically is taking a healthy person's microbiome, that is to say, their poop, um, and uh, it's a very, uh, when, when I was there at Dr. Corot's lab in, uh, in Minneapolis, it's a very it's a very simple procedure. There's a, a guy who comes in and with a sample uh, donor that is hands it off to someone who has an oster blender and puts some distilled water in, makes this uh, material, and then it's put into the sick person uh, through the rear with a colon colonoscope, the same instrument that is used to do a colonoscopy. You have those like, like plunger option. You can attachment you can put on, and it is a, a very inexpensive and effective uh, cure for this particular condition. So it's, it's fairly miraculous, uh, though icky. But the thing is that if you are someone with a chronic C. diff infection, you are already icked out, mm -hmm. uh, and it, it is, it, it, it's, it's, it's welcomed. Uh, and it's uh, in the time that I began, from the time I began working on the book till now, uh, the acceptance level has, has uh, gone up to the point where 
I think in most major cities, there, there's a place to go and have this done. Um, it was interesting. It was sort of held up by the fact that the um, the system for, for coding and billing in hospitals didn't really have, like, how do you code a fecal transplant and how much do you charge for it? Uh, so, there, you know, because normally a pharmaceutical company will instigate the approval process and the whole thing will sort of move through the, the standard channels. But here there was no pharmaceutical company or device maker. It's just a guy with a bag saying, here you go. Hmm. Uh, so um, anyway, that's the, that's the fecal transplant. Yeah. Uh, uh, here again, the the scientist or the doctor or the pe- people behind we're talking about are as fascinating as the science um, yes. Dr. Koritz, I guess, yes. developed this and I, I, it has a high ick factor, but I, I guess there's a point where you have the idea and then you say, well, I'm, I'm going to try this. Yeah, yeah. The first one was done decades ago, uh, and I spoke to uh, the a doctor, I think it was Eisner, I may be misremembering that, but he said that back then when you had you had an idea, and you tried it. Now there's, of course, many levels. There's the IRB review, and there's there's lots of uh, you know trials and 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 procedures that you follow. Uh, it's not quite so cavalier. So uh, it's it's been a long time. Uh, it, it's been out there, but not really part of the the medical system. But that is uh, with with a couple there are a couple of large studies that demonstrated how effective it is in curing C diff infection. So it's now been accepted as uh, and there also you can go in by the mouth uh, you can do it that way as well you can go down with an endoscope through the stomach and deliver it from the other direction i, th- I think it's uh, uh cheaper to do it that way i've been told but any- anyway when i saw it they were delivering it we're, we're, we're uh, reaching the end of our time i wanted to before we close i wanted to have you tell me about um fletcherism this is this was in vogue uh, we had several famous adherents. Yes, Fletcherism was a fad for very extreme chewing, and it was put forth by Horace Fletcher, who was not an MD or a man of medicine, but he had a lot of friends in high places, and he, he was an efficiency buff. He coined this phrase, nutritional economics, and the idea was that if you chewed the food for twice as long, you would get twice as many nutrients. And calories, and he then put this forth as something governments should—they should teach poor people to chew more thoroughly, and then they could feed them less at the soup kitchens, and they could save a lot of money that way. Um, it isn't—I mean, it's a—it it makes a certain amount of intuitive sense in, until you know uh, that the stomach does a really good job of turning whatever you put in there, most things anyway, uh, into chyme, which is a liquidy slurry that. Uh, spurt it out into the small intestine. So it's almost an insult to the powers of the stomach to think that you are, you need to liquidize food in the mouth. Certainly you can you know, save the stomach some trouble by, by chewing it thoroughly, but it isn't necessary. And um, some of the, uh, he once, he, he said, he cited one statistic, uh, a shallot, a bite of shallot, uh, 722 chews. Uh, if you do the math, that's a that's a meal time that's stretching on for a number of hours. You would be peckish again bef- <laughs> before the meal ended. <laughs> so uh, yeah, not it. Uh, it didn't last that long. Franz Kafka was a, a Fletcherizer. That I can't wrap my mind around. I have yeah. an image of Kafka with his, you know, the cheekbones and that intense stare. 
looking sort of still into the in the camera. I, I can't imagine him sitting at a table, but there was a line in one historian's account about uh, his father holding up the newspaper at breakfast so as not to have to watch Franz endlessly, grimly toiling away at his breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> that is a picture. I've got a I've got that picture in my mind now too. Yeah. Uh, so when you come to the end of uh, you know one of these journeys. Does it, how does it stay with you? For example, with gulp, do you uh, think differently about how you're eating or what you're eating or what's happening? I do. I do, I do eat diff- a little bit differently. I take advantage of my internal nostrils, which is the, that opening. You have two sets of nostrils. This I didn't know. Uh, in the back of the mouth, there's an opening up into the, um, the nose, and that when you exhale, when you have food or wine in your mouth and you are exhaling, you're actually re-experiencing those uh, flavor aromas. And so I try to do that. And I, I, I have this, I appreciate, I get a lot more uh, flavor from the food that way. Uh, it's, it's, so I, I, I've, I have changed a little bit the way I um, eat, drink wine and eat food because I have you know, a, a, a new appreciation, I guess, for my internal nostrils. And for my nose, in general. Uh, finally, uh, so stiff on cadavers, uh, spook, uh, bonk on sex, packing for Mars, uh, gulp, the elementary canal. What's, what's next? Oh, well, it is a, there is another book in the works. I'm, I'm keeping it under my hat for now. But uh, it, will, it, 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 is, it will relate to the human body in, in some unusual way. So um, it's, it's, uh, I'm just getting rolling on... Well, that's not true. I've been about a, a half a year into it. Well, we'll, uh, we'll look for that. And in the meantime, Gulp is out in paperback. And Mary Roach is coming to Salt Lake. Your opportunity to go hear her speak. Uh, that is Monday, April 21st. Weller Bookworks is bringing her to Salt Lake. And the event is at the Salt Lake City Public Library, the Testament Auditorium, 7 p.m. Mary Roach, a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a partnership of the Bridgerland Audubon Society, USU Extension, and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University. It's that time of year again when we encounter a barrage of public health messages alerting us to take precautions during cold and flu season. However, a different disease outbreak has been making headlines this winter in Utah, West Nile virus. The West Nile virus is not a new name to most of us. Our familiarity with it typically comes from summertime outbreaks amongst human populations. Yet this particular flare-up has gained attention for causing the deaths of over 50 bald eagles, and it happened during winter. West Nile virus is maintained in nature by a transmission cycle between mosquitoes and birds. In this cycle, birds simply act as pathogen reservoirs, while the mosquitoes act as the pathogen vectors passing the virus on to their eggs and infecting humans and animals through bites. Historically, in the location of the disease's origin, Africa, Europe, Asia, and the Middle East, this pathogen is rarely fatal to its avian hosts. In fact, antibodies to West Nile virus have been found in the blood of birds native to this region. It wasn't until 1997 when a stronger strain of West Nile virus emerged and caused fatalities in a wide range of avian species that the infection started to be considered pathogenic to birds. When the disease first reached the United States in 1999, it proved to be highly virulent in North American bird populations. The American crow was particularly susceptible. 
Within four months of detection in New York, nearly 5,500 crows died from the infection. Since this first outbreak, West Nile virus spread across the United States and has been isolated in over 250 species of birds, including bald eagles. While wintertime infection amongst human populations is rare, infection during the season is not so uncommon for birds. This is because birds can contract the disease by a variety of routes other than mosquito bites and direct contact. This is especially the case amongst opportunistic scavengers like raptors. If a raptor consumes the carcass of a bird killed by West Nile virus, it can contract the virus orally, as the bald eagles did after consuming the remains of infected eared grebes. Luckily, while bird-to-bird transmission does occur amongst birds that exhibit roosting and group behaviors, the likelihood of a bald eagle, which is typically a solitary bird, directly passing the disease to another bald eagle, is quite low. Meaning that once the last of the infected food source is gone, hopefully no further infections will occur. For Wild About Utah, I'm Anna Bankson. Wild About Utah, a partnership of the Bridgerland Audubon Society, USU Extension, and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on UPR is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu. Hi, it's Lynn Rosetto-Casper. It's one thing to master cooking techniques and entirely another to master flavor. Join us this week with Indian chef Raghavan Iyer for the Indian flavoring tricks that will echo through everything you cook. That's The Splendid Table from APM. Tuesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.